Good morning. I want to uh, just continue in worship. We've been singing it. Now I want to look at uh, what we've been singing through the lens of Scripture. We are in this series on Job, which is a book out of the Old Testament that looks at what does it mean to pursue God as men and women of faith, especially when life gets really hard, especially when there are circumstances or hardships that tend to want to derail our faith and our trust. How, how do we hang on to God when life seems to crumble, when God feels distant? So the book of Job is this incredible gift that brings us weightiness to our questions, into our confusion, into our doubt. Uh, it's, it's not content with these, these pithy, tweetable, hallmark, you know, poster-type phrases. It, it is an invitation to get into the dust with Job and to, uh, to feel what he feels in order to discover what he discovers, and that is that God does not abandon us ever. So last week, uh, Rick looked at chapter 2, which is a look behind the curtain at what is going on in heaven as a parallel to what Job is experiencing on, on earth. And there are some people that read the book of Job as this epic battle, you know, kind of middle earth battle. Um, between God and Satan, and Job is unfortunately caught in the middle. He just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Here's the problem with that. If this is a battle, if this is a war, then how strange that one side would have to ask the other side when to attack. So if it's not a war, if it's not a battle, even though there are elements of spiritual battle throughout it, if, it's, if that's not primarily what it is, then what is it? Well, it's a test. It's a test. And specifically, it is Satan, the enemy, devil, testing God through Job. And the test revolves around this one question, which showed up last week in our study. Does Job fear God for no reason? God, does, does Job fear you for no reason? That's the question that Satan poses to, to God. In a sense, he tells God, of course he loves you. Of course Job worships you. I mean, why wouldn't he? He's got everything, you know? He's got this awesome family. He's got this big house. He's got all the sheep and the camels that you could possibly imagine. Why wouldn't Job worship you? Why wouldn't he follow after you? But what if everything became nothing? Then what would happen? Would Job still follow after you? God, would you still be enough for Job? That's the question that gets posed. And that's coming out of Satan's own philosophy on life, which is this philosophy that I am my own God. Isaiah 14 Satan says, I will make myself like the Most High. His philosophy is one of, of self-preservation and self-promotion and self-centeredness. And, and he assumes that everyone, including Job, shares that same philosophy. 
And so then he gets permission from God to dismantle all the props. And in one no good, very bad day, Job loses all of his possessions and he loses his family and he loses his health. Job is left with nothing except misery and and this question. And the question is why? Whatever form suffering takes, it always is a matter of faith. Any kind of suffering always attacks our faith. And so here's the question for us today. Can I hold on to God? Can I hold on to trust into faith in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship? So Job chapter 2 last week took us behind this behind the scenes at this epically uh, cosmic, eternally transcendent why of Job's suffering. But here's the deal. Job's never privy to that conversation. The whole book of Job, he doesn't know what was going on behind the scenes. He doesn't know the transcendent why. All he's left with is this very imminent, this very present misery. And so let me read again from last week's chapter 2 of Job just to set the stage for where we go today. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Remember from from week one that Job was a man of character and a man of integrity. And his wife says, are you still hanging on to that? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all of this, listen to this, Job did not sin in what was said. And when he, when Job's I'm sorry, when Job's friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So in Job chapter 3 begins this long lament, this incredibly honest cry that gives us this picture of what a faithful and yet emotionally raw response to suffering looks like. Job chapter 3. At last, Job spoke, and he cursed the day of his birth. I was thinking about um, my grandma's church. My, my grandma lived in this little town called Mulberry Grove, Illinois. And a uh, little podunk town with this church that by the time I came on the scene, the church had kind of shriveled to 30 or 40 people. It was a big church building, but um, not very many people. And so they all sat on the back two rows, you know? And uh, I think most of everybody was over the age of 70. And so I would go visit, and 
uh, I remember a couple of times I visited on my birthday, and they had this tradition in their church that if it was your birthday, you had to come down front, and they had this ginormous wooden church. Uh, it was kind of a replica of the actual church building, but it was a bank. Did anybody's church have this? Yeah? So it was this big bank, and I... You, you were supposed to go down front and put money in the bank. And that was so confusing to me as a little kid. It's like, it's my birthday. <laughs> Why am I not on the receiving end here? So I would go down the aisle in front of, you know, the back two rows of old people, and I would put my quarter in this big church bank, and then all of the congregation would say this saying, this blessing over me. And here's how it went. And this is the tone with which it was said. Many happy returns on the day of thy birth. May sunshine and gladness be given. <laughs> and may the good Lord prepare thee on earth for a beautiful birthday in heaven. It's like a funeral dirge, you know? <laughs> Many happy returns on the day of thy birth. Job says just the opposite. Job says, I wish I had never been born in the first place. He says this in this poetry that comes at this erasing a day from the calendar from lots of different angles. He says, let the day of my birth be erased. In the night I was conceived, let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own and let a black cloud overshadow it and let the darkness terrify it. Let that night be blotted off the calendar, never again to be counted among the days of the year, never again to appear among the months. Let that night be childless. Let it have no joy. Let those who are experts at cursing, whose cursing could rouse Leviathan, curse that day. Let its morning stars remain dark. Let it hope for light, but in vain. May it never see the morning light. Curse that day for failing to shut my mother's womb for letting me be born to see all of this trouble. Scratch it. Okay, so maybe it's not reasonable, God, that you would just scratch an entire day out of the calendar. But, Job laments, if I had to be born, then why didn't you just stop my life immediately? Why let me grow up? If this is what was waiting in the wings, this kind of hardship and this kind of pain and this kind of loss, then what's the purpose of that? He says, he says, why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why was I laid on my mother's lap? Why did she nurse me at her breast? Had I died at birth, I would now be at peace. I would be asleep and at rest. I would rest with the world's kings and prime ministers whose great buildings now lie in ruins. I would rest with princes rich in gold whose palaces were filled with silver. Why wasn't I buried like a stillborn child, like a baby who never lives to see the light? 
For in death, the wicked cause no trouble and the weary are at rest. Even captives are at ease in death with no guards to curse them. Rich and poor are both there and the slave is free from his master. So, I wish you would have just blocked out this whole day off the calendar, but at least blocked me out of existence. Why, why did you let me grow up if you knew this is what was going to happen? And then he put some other questions to it. Why? Why give light to those in misery and life to those who are bitter? He's saying, beyond my own storyline, why, why give light to anybody who's in misery? They long for death, and it won't come. They search for death more eagerly than for hidden treasure. They're filled with joy when they finally die and rejoice when they find the grave. Why is life given to those with no future, those that God has surrounded with difficulties? And then he wraps up this lament with this reality. He says, I, I can't eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace. I have no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. And this song gets sung chapter after chapter throughout the book of Job. Three quarters of the way through, Job 30 says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. My, my lyre, my guitar is tuned to mourning. And my pipe, my flute, to the sound of wailing. Heavy, heavy stuff. Eugene Peterson writes, this is the suffering that first bewilders and then outrages us. Job was doing everything right when suddenly everything went wrong. And so again, the question, can I hold on to God? Can I hold on to faith? Can I hold on to trust even in the middle of suffering? So when people go through suffering, when you and I go through suffering, we react or respond or cope in various ways. And this is not an exhaustive list, but here are two or three. We tend to fixate on the what ifs. I have a friend whose wife uh, got cancer. And he was so consumed with the what ifs. You know, he had two boys. What, what's going to become of our family? How am I going to raise those boys by myself? What, what if, what if, what if? And he was meeting with his counselor, and his counselor said this. You are giving so much time and energy and worry into something that hasn't happened. The reality is that his wife got better. And my friend said he realized how much life he would have lost fixated on the possibilities. A fixation on this what if can lead to this fear-driven anxiety. And many, many of us know what that's like. We live under this, this umbrella, this cloud of what if. 
And that can lead to the self-protective barrier of cynicism or fatalism, that anything that can go wrong will most likely go wrong, you know? Hey, I heard you're going to Disney World. Yeah, but I'll probably get stuck on It's a Small World for eight hours, so that's that, you know? So what if is one response, another response is that we numb. Brene Brown said there's no selective way to numb. In order to keep ourselves from being vulnerable, we numb ourselves in a ton of different ways, but there is no selective way to numb our fear or to numb our shame or hurt because we end up numbing our joy in the process. We, we can't be selective with what parts of us that we numb. And so in our desire to, to numb the pain and to numb the suffering, we end up numbing the joy and the hope as well. If we shut down desire, we lose part of what it means to be human. And that's really the pathway toward addiction, which is an attempt to escape, an attempt to avoid our pain. A third response is that we become uber pious in order to, to cover up our hurt or, or uber optimistic. Lego movie, you know, everything is awesome. We put on this religious mask that, that hides the fact that we're going through tough things. You know, I'm getting over it. You know, I'm feeling much better, feeling happy. The Monty Python reference, you didn't get that, did you? I put it behind me. What doesn't kill me makes me... Yes, thank you, Kelly. (laughs) So these routes, they, they leave us with doubt and despair and disappointment, slowly growing like a cancer that will eventually consume our lives, destroy our relationships, steal our joy. So here's what's true. Here's the promise of Scripture. Jesus does give us joy in the midst of circumstances. He does give us supernatural contentment in the middle of hardships. But true joy doesn't deny the pain and the hardship. Rather, it embraces and clarifies it in light of our awareness of being embraced by our good and compassionate and heavenly Father. It doesn't bring the kind of clarity that says, oh, you know, this happened because this is going to happen because this is going to happen. Rather, it clarifies the fact that God is present and God cares. And God, the merciful and gracious God, is the God who is with. What we see in Job, he he doesn't curse God. He doesn't get rid of the problem by getting rid in his mind of God. He doesn't explain suffering. He doesn't instruct us on how to avoid suffering. And those last two, you know, there are books and books and books that try to do just that. To explain suffering and to give us some way to avoid it because we want to avoid it. Job gives another way. He laments. Again, Peterson says, Job gives voice to our pain. He he makes poetry out of what in many of us is only a tangle of confused whimpers. He shouts out to God what a lot of us mutter behind our sleeves. 
He refuses to accept the role of a deflated victim. He laments. Laments are all throughout Scripture. They're all through the prophets. Jesus actually used lament. A third of the Psalms, there are 150 Psalms. A third of them, over a third of them, about 65, are laments. Such as a lament of pain, Psalm 80. How long, God? Why have you built us up and cared for us and now allow us to be broken in pieces? A a lament of anger, Psalm 44. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. All this happened, listen to this, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. We were doing the deal, and yet this happened. Wake up, Lord, why do you sleep? Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Are you kidding me? That's in the Bible? Yeah. A lament of confusion, Psalm 77. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door in his compassion? Why is this happening? Why, why, why? I love it that God in his grace and his compassion and his goodness gives us songs in the minor key to sing. Lament brings our pain before God in order to process through it in the presence of the Holy Spirit in his people. Lamenting is owning it before the Lord. It's movement toward God. It's not simply complaint. It's not venting. It's not blaming. It's not making preemptive vows. It's not disillusioned contempt. It's being honest. It's bearing our soul. It's honest words. It's leaving the door open for God's hope and joy. A lament, even though it seems like one in Scripture, it's not just a rant that's already reached its conclusion. It's an open-ended, humble desire to trust God in the pain and in the grief. Lament takes us below the surface emotion to really go after the heart of God. It doesn't suppress the need or desire for truth, but it also doesn't isolate truth as simply the demand to know why. Lament is tied to the who. That truth is actually relational in the person of Jesus. Lament is a search that goes beyond our own self-sufficiency in order to grab a hold of God. It broadens our perspective about our circumstances and about ourselves and about God, forcing us to deal with the side effects of sin and what it means to live in a fallen world, but also 
inviting us into a broader perspective of God and his mercy and his grace. Dan Allender wrote, Lament cuts through insincerity. It strips pretense and reveals the raw nerve of trust that angrily approaches the throne of grace and then kneels in awed, robust wonder. I'm going to leave that on the screen for a bit. If you want to make a tattoo of that, that'd be a good one. I don't know if you're like me or not, but when you're in the midst of something really hard and in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, it's hard to find the words. Lament is actually language. It's language that is raw and honest and unbridled whose ink has not yet dried. I don't know who said that, but that's definitely a tattoo. It is language that is raw and honest and unbridled, with, but with words whose ink has not yet dried. And that's what we find in Job. 35 chapters of raw, honest, unbridled, still wet ink. gives weightiness to our own pain and to our own suffering. Hmm. Uh, It's so valuable to have Job as this this ancient picture. It's one of the, the first books of the Bible that was actually written. And the fact that that God in his sovereignty wanted the book of Job included in Scripture, says a ton about what a gracious God and an inviting God he is. But I I wanted to um, look at a present-day story as well. And there are so many of you who could come up and share your own lament, share your own story of of pain. And the story I know best, though, is, is the story of my daughter, Emma. And Leah and I have had a front row seat to how she has gone through nearly a decade of chronic pain and loss and yet has had this this tenacious and honest hanging on to God, that her faith and trust in him has actually grown in the middle of the suffering. And so I just want to give you just a snapshot of her lament this morning. And let's, let's start with your story. You've been chronically ill for a big chunk of your life. Mm-hmm. When did that start? So I started showing symptoms around the age of 10, um, just like weakened immune system and fatigue. Um, and then when I was about 14 is when the issues worsened. And um, I was experiencing chronic pain and nausea on a daily basis and began missing a lot of school like volleyball and extracurriculars became just too much for me to handle and I um, had a really hard time spending time with 
friends because symptoms would arise and it just really started to strip me of normalcy. Um, and then when I was about 14, yeah, 15, um, is when the issues reached a pretty alarming level of severity. Um, I was in and out of the ER a lot and with, with chronic pain and loss of consciousness. hospitalized and that was like I think when it became really real to me that what I was dealing with was abnormal for someone my age um, and in my stage of life and um, yeah I think I began to feel pretty robbed of my adolescence and really grieved missing out on that it was hard to even have normal conversations with my peers because I felt like I couldn't not share what I was going through but at the same time was scared too because it felt burdensome and so misunderstood. So there just quickly grew a gap between me and those my age. So there's a gap between you and your friends mm -hmm. and you missed a ton of school, basically yeah. all of high school. Yeah. Um, month in the Mayo Clinic, lots of, lots of doctors, lots of specialists, um, and then finally nailing diagnosis, right? Yeah, so when I was 17, I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease, um, and then treatment for that was heavy antibiotics and um, just kind of like a trial and error basis to see what worked, and, and so where I'm at right now is... I was holding the steady with treatment, um, and so my doctor decided to take me off of my meds and just see how I did. And so I have been pretty regulated and um, functional day to day, but I still have chronic pain and frequent migraines and seizures, and it's still it's still debilitating. So what? Has life with God been like through all of that? Who has God been for you in that whole process? Um, I would say in summation, God has been just a comforter. Um, it's interesting because really my entire relationship with God has been in the context of chronic pain and suffering. And so it has raised a lot of questions and doubts and griefs. You're, you're not done with this. And so, what does the ongoing lament look like, especially versus a couple of years ago? Yeah, um, I think I've come to recognize that for me, um, grief has 
sort of become worship. Um, I've been singing songs of lament for a lot of years. Um, and I think that the invitation moving forward is to experience and worship God in joy and in the fullness of joy. Um, because grief and sorrow have become normative and even comfortable. And so um, to worship God in joy despite the pain I still feel is what it looks like to grow out of this, I think. I really think that sort of a, a beautiful result and a beautiful gift from this has been just my ability to fully trust God despite circumstances. Um, I think that I have a knowing of his goodness and his faithfulness because it's been tried. Um, it's been tried in a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And it's, it's a trust that is deepened by circumstances that I would probably not have otherwise. Yeah, I think that through trial and by God's goodness and grace that I've reached this truth, um, which is that I don't need to be fully healed to know that I'm loved. I kept that last part in because I, I wanted to have a little um, levity, I think, to that story. Um, they have a new puppy. Ralph and Emma have a new puppy. And the puppy was sleeping and had a nightmare and started barking in her sleep. But I wanted, I wanted you to see Emma's face light up as well because I think that's, that's part of the, the ongoing lament is like acknowledgement of how how robbing suffering is on the one hand, but then God's provision and God's abundance in the middle of it, that there is an acknowledgement of, of the weightiness, but also the, the light your face up moments of joy, you know? And I think Emma has experienced that in a, a really an amazing way. And, and I think uh, our family, you know, I think... I think Levi and Justin and Leah and I and, and now Ralph and experience that as well. That, that lament is a shared lament. And, our, you know, our friends share that as well. And so this is what's true, that life is hard and God is good and that we, we hold this intention. And God invites that tension. And maybe what he wants to do through these seasons, and sometimes prolonged seasons, uh, looks a little different than, than what we thought we actually needed or wanted. Gerald Sitzer is a, an author. Rick mentioned him last week that he... Uh, experience deep grief and loss. And he says, loss requires that we live, we live in a delicate tension. We must mourn, but we also go on living. 
The decision to face the darkness, even if it led to overwhelming pain, showed me that the experience of loss itself does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss or our response to the pain or the grief or the, the trauma. It's not what happens to us that matters as much as what happens in us. And, and what happens in us, friends, is we, as we hold this tension of, of God's goodness, and this absolutely sucks. As we hold that tension, what happens in us is a deepening, is a, is a maturity. And this maturity comes with an with a ever-expanding picture of reality. So laments are built on a record of God's past faithfulness. We have scripture that is, you know, thousands of years of God's faithfulness. But you have your own story as well. Of God's presence and his grace and his work that as we look backward over the course of our lives, we do, we do get a sense of his withness. And that doesn't mean that the pain is less. What it does mean is that we have a different vantage point. We look backward to see forward. And that builds our trust. There's also a, a, a director's cut version versus the movie trailer. You know what I'm talking about? Director's cut? You, you, rent, a, you rent a DVD from the Red Box and and there's all kinds of extras and bloopers and stuff. And, but there's also usually a, sometimes a director's cut, which is all of the footage with some commentary. And so part of this, this trusting process is that we get more of the director's cut as, as we walk with God. We, we have more data. But for Job, he never got the full director's cut. And yet, he undoubtedly trusted God's provision and his sovereignty and his goodness. What's really cool about the laments in the Psalms and in Lamentations is that um, some of them get resolved. So I read Psalm 77 earlier. Let me read the rest of it. Here's a bit of what I read. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? Very raw questions, right? And then it says, but then... But then, but then is the movement of lament. But then I recall all that you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. And so, yeah, my, my pain is still there and my suffering is still there. And I don't know where this is going, but, but I, I do have this picture in my head of your Love, God. And as that picture takes up more and more space, as Jesus gets more of our peripheral, 
it has a way of reframing our pain. Lamentations 3, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness, the gall. I remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So whether we see the complete resolve in our life or not, the promise is a complete resolve. And that all goes back to the cross. There is restoration. There is healing. There is reconciliation. There is a promise that is being fulfilled There is not just an end, but a beginning. There is a turning point in lament, a yet but. There is a hope that does not disappoint. And all of that leads us to and through the cross of Jesus. That is the defining hope that defines our pain. This is from Adele Calhoun. Again and again and again, the Holy One, vulnerable to the grief and sorrows of his beloved tribe, reaches down to repair and restore. And when reaching down doesn't solve human brokenness, God comes down himself in human flesh. God moves into the neighborhood and walks in our shoes. God incarnate was in solidarity with human sin and misery. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That leads us into a time of communion. So we're going to take this bread. And we're going to take this cup. This is, this is a remembrance. This is a look, looking backward at what Jesus has done the provision that that God has made for us. And so this is something we do each week as as a community of believers. And if you are a Jesus follower, we invite you to take part in it. It is both a look back and it is a look forward. It's letting the cross frame our lives. Rick ended last week's sermon with this mic drop, okay? He says, how do we know and trust God? Here's how. He himself came and entered into that suffering. He himself showed up to die. He himself hated death so much that he reversed it by resurrecting from the dead. And not only did he do that to show his great power, but he also gave that power away to us. He says, we don't just live in a world of undeserved suffering. We live in a universe of undeserved grace. The cross is, the cross ultimately answers the question of the problem of pain. The cross is God's lament, but it's also God's remedy. So let me pray and let's take communion together. Lord, thank you. for reminders 
of your love and of your grace and of your power and sovereignty. In the midst of all of our questions that you, you even invite us to ask, thank you that the ultimate answer to those is the cross. That you took on our pain, you took on our suffering, you took on our sin, and you took on our death, and you put to death, death. So then the, the promise is, you know, what, what can possibly separate us from the love of God? It's nothing. Nothing. So in that promise, we live. In that promise, we remember. We look forward. Would you reframe our human experience through the cross of Jesus today, through your lament, through the tension of your goodness in whatever pain we are experiencing. We pray that in the hope and in the promise and in the joy of Christ. Amen.